0: You're listening to On Human Rights, where we interview experts from around the world on the most important issues and trends in the fields of human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today, RWI's Leila Fall interviews Mariam al-Kawaja. She's a Bahraini human rights defender living in exile who was recently visiting Sweden. Enjoy. Can you give us a general overview of the situation in Bahrain right now?
1: Unfortunately, if we're looking at the situation of Bahrain right now, what we're seeing is an extreme deterioration in the human rights situation. What we're seeing is the government basically closing down all of civil society space. And so even the few activists that had remained in Bahrain who were not in prison or in exile already are now being summoned for interrogation and being placed under a travel ban and might be sentenced and put in jail as well. Um, there's no space for freedom of expression. There's no space for freedom of assembly. And so basically a lot of these you know, very basic rights that people take for granted in places like Sweden and Denmark, uh, in Bahrain, you don't have access to them at all. And when you try to practice those rights, you're immediately arrested or charged or targeted by the government. So I would say that generally when we're looking at Bahrain, um, the situation is going towards um, a much worse human rights scenario. Uh, And we're very worried about where we're headed.
0: In a larger context, do you think that Bahrain needs help from the international community?
1: I wouldn't say so much that Bahrain needs help from the international community, but more that Bahrain needs accountability. When you talk about human rights issues, and especially now that we've had executions in Bahrain, I mean, just since the beginning of this year, we've had nine people killed uh, in the country. And so... What Bahrain needs, and sorry, when we're talking about human rights violations, the main issue, how do you stop human rights violations from happening? You stop them from happening by implementing accountability. Accountability is always at the forefront of stopping human rights violations. And the reason why people commit human rights violations a lot of times is because of the lack of accountability. And I think that to a large extent, not just Bahrain, but all of the GCC countries... Um, They get away or they commit human rights abuses because they know they can get away with it internationally. They have international impunity because of their uh, power, because of their money. And so I think uh, if the international community really wants to help Bahrain on human rights issues, they will hold them accountable. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you tell us about what you have learned from your father and how did he influence you?
1: So I grew up in a human rights family, and uh, both my parents are activists. My father is, of course, very well known as a human rights defender. Um, he, him and both, both him and my mother taught us that um, it's very important when you're evaluating your life to be able to look at what you have done for society. And if you can't find anything that you've done to serve society, then your life isn't really fulfilled. And so we grew up in that environment, the environment of the need to, um, you know, the need to do something when you see injustice. The, The fact that you cannot stand on the side and watch injustice happen, because when you do that, you become part of that injustice. And so watching both of my parents as activists, you know, growing up, it really affected us, I think, as well, myself and my sister's. Uh, Now, my father, like I said, is the activist who's like well known, who's been you know at the forefront of creating a human rights movement in Bahrain and in the Gulf. He's worked with international organizations and so on. But my mother, she's the strength in the family. She's the rock, and she's the person who is the reason that all of us can do what we do as human rights defenders. What do Bahraini demonstrators want? So when the demonstration started in 2011, uh, the main demand was uh, in relation to the constitution. The king had unilaterally changed the constitution in 2002, um, putting himself above the constitution of course, and naming Bahrain a kingdom and himself a king, he used to be an emir. Um, And so when people took to the streets in 2011, they said we want a constitution that's agreed upon between the people and the monarchy, which if you think about it is not that much to ask. But then they started shooting and killing people on the streets. And so once that started happening and people were being killed on the streets, the demand shifted. And it was no longer just about the constitution, but about the monarchy stepping down. And so the main demand of most of the protesters right now is that the monarchy step down from power.
0: When uprisings take place, in which way does the Bahraini
1: regime use its power? So in 2011, what we saw was a knee-jerk reaction to the protests. So, you know, as soon as people came out protesting and wanting social and political change, um, the government had that knee-jerk reaction of immediately using violence. And we saw this all over, you know, the region as a response to the revolutions. But I would say that that's shifted since, since 2011 until now in 2017. And the way that it's shifted is that the government has done a really good job at institutionalizing the crackdown. And what that means is that now they no longer have to use the same kind of force and violence that they used to in 2011. Because what they've done is that now they have complete control over public space. And now they're using the judiciary as the main tool of going after dissent. And so if you criticize the government, if you're outspoken, if you're an activist, they don't come to your home and just beat you. They take you to court, and they put you in prison for a really long time. And so when you look at Bahrain from a per capita perspective, we have about 700,000 people who are Bahraini citizens in Bahrain. Um, And then you compare that to the fact that we have at any given time around 4,000 political prisoners. Per capita, that's one of the highest numbers uh, in the region when we're talking about the you know political prisoners in any prison in the region, and so they're using the judiciary the, the judiciary as the main tool of going after activists and going after protesters, but we're still seeing you know other types of crackdown methodologies and you know that you have the conventional stuff extrajudicial killings, uh, torture torture is systematic in Bahrain, uh, arbitrary arrests, long sentences you know and so on, raids in the middle of the night on people's homes, excessive use of force against protests, raids in the middle of the night. But we also have unconventional tools. And one of the best, one of the unconventional tools that the Bahraini government is best known for is the revocation of citizenship. And so since 2011, we've had more than 300 people having their Bahraini citizenship revoked because they participated in the protests or because they criticized the government. And so they use definitely both conventional and unconventional tools in trying to, you know, kill the revolution. What is the biggest difficulty of being an activist fighting for human rights in Bahrain from abroad? I think there are many different difficulties on many different levels when you're a human rights defender in exile. Um, There are difficulties on both the personal and professional level, of course. On the professional level, you have to always understand that you're not on the ground and understand what that means and so for example one of the things that I made as a rule for myself when I went into exile was that I will never ask people in Bahrain to do something unless I can do it with them and so I will not tell people you need to go out and protest and put your life at risk unless I can be in that protest with them because I think it's not fair for me to be sitting in Europe telling people in Bahrain you need to go out and put your life at risk. Um, So that's, like, one rule that I put for myself. And that is a difficulty because sometimes you see things and you want to say, you know, go out, do this, but you're not supposed to. Um, On the other hand, you know, on a more personal level, and, of course, this affects your ability to work as well, is something that's very well known to any activist in exile, which is survivor's guilt. Um, And that's basically feeling guilty all the time for having survived when others did not, For for being able to live, you know, pretty much securely being able to go out with friends and enjoy your time when other people are sitting in prison cells and so you carry that with you all the time and you carry it with you everywhere you go and it does affect you a lot because it means that even if you take a break you feel guilty for taking that break and so you feel like you constantly need to work to make up for having survived when others didn't do you see an optimistic future for baron I think we always need to be optimistic or maybe even not optimistic, but we always need to have hope because without hope, we can't do what we do. And I think that's generally, you know, especially with Bahrain, which is one of those cases where people look at it and it's like, oh, it's a failed uprising. Nothing's ever going to change. We don't even know why you're doing what you're doing. And my opinion is that if what we're doing right now, even if we don't see change in our lifetime, if I know that we are making things better for the next generation so that my nieces and nephews can grow up in a free country that respects them as citizens, where they don't have to be, you know, violated uh, on a daily basis because they spoke their opinion. Um, For me, that's good enough, even if I don't see it in my lifetime. As long as they don't have to go through the same struggle that we're going through right now, then it's good enough. That's what it's worth it. Um, And I think that's, even if we don't see the change now, we're planting the seeds for change. And that matters so much. Change always takes time. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, things like, well, you know, it's been six years. Why aren't we seeing successes of the Arab Spring revolutions? Revolutions never take six years. Look at history. Look at the French Revolution and other revolutions that happen. They take a long time before you actually reach or achieve a real democracy. And so why are we expected to achieve it in six years when others could not? Mariam,
0: thank you very much. My pleasure. That was RWI's Leila Fall interviewing Mariam al Kawaja, a Bahraini human rights defender currently living in exile. On Human Rights is brought to you by the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with more experts from around the world on the most important issues and trends in the fields of human rights and humanitarian law.